I'm not afraid to be broke. I'm not afraid to not be able to pay my bills. None of that I've been there. So remember, I grew up like that. So that's a whole different perspective than somebody who just the thought of being broke and not being able to pay their bills, that would stop them in their tracks from doing something way out there from the beginning. You have the desire to create financial freedom, but you also want to make a powerful, positive impact on the world. This podcast exists to tell the inspiring stories of men and women who have achieved both, people who do well and do good. Discover proof that individuals have the ability to make a massive impact. Brought to you by your host, Dorothy Ilson. Welcome everyone to episode 12 of the Do Well and Do Good podcast. My name is Dorothy, I'm your host, and I could not be more excited to have you here, especially today, because we're talking with my good friend, Daryl Roberts. Now, Daryl is one of those people where I've known him for about three years, and every time I pick up a new tidbit of information about his life, about his story, I'm reminded of what an unbelievable person that he is. So if you get value from this episode, I encourage you to hit that subscribe button, subscribe to the podcast, write a review, and share this episode with anyone who you think would get value from it also. So now more about Daryl. He is truly the definition of a self-made man. He grew up on the south side of Chicago, and even though growing up, he didn't really have any money, he didn't have opportunities handed to him but he always operated on the belief that he could accomplish whatever he set his mind to. And so this attitude has resulted in a varied and illustrious career. From being a radio personality and party promoter in Chicago, self-producing two romantic comedy films and three documentaries, to now being the founder and CEO of Harley Boy Innovation, a boutique industrial psychology firm whose clients include the NBA, U.S. Tennis, LaCroix, and Under Armour. Now, Daryl is the man behind Be Me, Be Free, a national anxiety, stigma, freeing, and empowerment campaign, which launched on September 5th. And this campaign will result in one young person's story being turned into a movie for lifetime. In today's episode, Daryl takes us through some of the fascinating twists and turns of his career and the way that he really persevered and broke through barriers to accomplish big goals that everyone told him were impossible. So if you're someone who dreams big, this is the episode for you. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Daryl. Daryl, thank you so much for being here. I really couldn't be more excited to share your story and the launch of Be Me, Be Free with our listeners. Thanks for having me. So, Daryl, having known you for a few years now, I know that your story has more interesting twists and turns than we could possibly go into in one interview. But before we jump into your career, I want to start actually at the very beginning with a question that I ask every guest. So that is, what conscious or subconscious beliefs about money did your family instill in you growing up? And were those helpful or harmful to you in achieving success? Wow, you know what? I don't think that I got money necessarily instilled in me uh, as a young person, only because we didn't really have much growing up, many much uh, money. So I think my concept was more of humanness and love. I think that was the primary thing I was focused on growing up. 
uh, which led to me not really understanding the concept of money. So I was kind of lucky. You know, in my earlier years, like early 20s, I got into a, a few ventures where I was able to, you know, make a lot of money, especially for somebody 21, 22, and 23. But like you said, because that concept of money wasn't instilled to me, I think I did a lot of ridiculous things with the money that I would not have done had um, that been something that was instilled in me. So was there you know, any sort of kind of scarcity mindset that you had to rewrite as you started in your career? No, I didn't have a scarcity mindset. So like I said, I didn't really have much growing up, but now this is the part that would be subconscious because I don't know how it happened. But I think starting when I was a little kid, like six, seven, eight, or nine, I just assumed I was going to be uh, rich and famous. And literally, I just started acting that way, even with nothing uh, in my pocket, I remember cutting out pictures of Mercedes Benzes and opulent things out of magazines and hanging them on the wall. And I was uh, 10 and you know, the people around me, they'd be like, what are you doing? You'll never have one of those. And I was like, sure. And I'm going to have a Mercedes one day. So I didn't have a scarcity mindset, but I don't know what drove this concept that I would be like very well off one day. So if I had to think about it, I would probably say what it was, was my way of escaping my surroundings by fantasizing and creating this, at the time, fictitious world that I would be and was a part of. So you mentioned that in your early 20s, that was the first time that you, you know, had a successful venture making money. What were you doing at the time? Uh, I turned into a promoter when I was um, 23, and it got to the point I was making 100000 a year at 23, and at that point, the most I'd ever made, I worked at a gas station, Arco, AMP, and Minimark. I think I was making 230 an hour, maybe. 265 I think, was the minimum wage at the time. So that was a significant jump from working at the gas station to being a um, promoter. I did social events around Chicago. And it was funny. It was no real transformation in my mindset or how I acted literally when that money came, because it was like six figures for a 23-year-old in the 80s. Like today, Mm. that's not a big deal. But in the 80s, that was like a super big deal. But because of the way I was thinking my whole life, I just felt I was where I was always supposed to be, and it was just a smooth transition into it. And so how did that happen? Tell us the story. So you left school. You're in Chicago. You know, I know that you started throwing these parties where you would have hundreds of people coming and, and paying money to attend these things, but that obviously didn't you know, come out of nowhere. How did you get that started? So I, I don't understand how I think. So there are like certain key moments uh, in my life that I know what I thought. I just didn't know. I just don't know why I thought it. So there was a guy, his name was uh, Phil, and Phil used to be a promoter in Chicago. In fact, he's the most famous promoter in Chicago. He used to throw these big parties at the Park West. And I would go to Phil's party, and they would be packed. So it wasn't actually hundreds. It'd be like a couple of thousand people there. Wow. It was all the beautiful people. I was at his parties looking around. I was like, 
wow, I want to do this. So I just decided I would start throwing parties. So I threw one. It was at a um, health club on LaSalle Street, right off LaSalle, Ontario, and four people came. (laughs) And then I threw another one. I can't recall where that one was. 12 people came. And at the time, it would cost about $900 to $1,500 to throw these parties. And it was $12 to get in. So when I say three people came or four people came, I mean, you made $30, $40, but you spent 1000 So after that third one, I'm borrowing this money because I was broke at the time. So after that third one, I remember my stepfather, who actually all my life, but on this venture as well, told me, why don't you give it up? Because, you know, you're not cut out for this. You can't do everything you see somebody else do. He was referring to Phil Johnson because that's how I made my decision. Like I said, he told me, so that was my running thing with my stepfather. He would always tell me what I'm not, what I couldn't do. And I would always do it, like on every single occasion. So I'm not sure if I just really want to be a party promoter. At this point, I'm trying to prove him wrong again. So I came up with a concept. And then, then this, I don't know why I thought this, but when I was little, I used to dream about being a movie star. I was fixated with the concept of being a movie star. I mean, almost, I think it was unhealthy. So at the time, the Chicago Bulls, there was this player on there. His name was Reggie Theus. And you can look him up on the internet. Reggie Theus was considered one of the most handsome men in the world. He was on the cover of GQ. He was well-dressed. He drove this big gold, I'll never forget it, Mercedes 450 SEL. And women just dropped at their feet at the thought of Reggie Theus. So I thought, which I don't know why, it's not like I knew him. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do my next party and I'm going to get Reggie Theus to come. <clears throat> I told everybody, like I said, he was a star of the Bulls at the time. And they would laugh in my face. I think at this point, I had like $8. So I jumped on the L. $8 to your name? $8 to my name. So I jumped on the L. It was a $1.10 with a transfer. I remember that. So I went to the Chicago Stadium. There was a Bulls game. And I started asking the security guards, where do the players come when they leave? And, you know, this wasn't like the times of now, like heavy paparazzi and celebrity. So it was a little easier to get to these people. They said, oh, they're still right there. And I saw his car because I saw it in a magazine. I stood by his car. And he came out. I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's Reggie Theus. And I walked up to him, told him I gave parties, how I wanted to honor him. And says, honor me for what? And who are you? And I was like, was giving him this spill. He goes, I mean, I just don't care. So I just decided to pour my heart out. I said, Reggie, I'm just a young guy. I'm like just 22. And I threw these parties and I borrowed all my mom's money and she couldn't afford to give it to me. And I'm broke. And now I took all her money. And I think she's broke. And I just want to make my money back. And women actually love you. And if I could put your picture on my invitation, I think thousands of women would show up. He goes, what makes you think thousands of people would show up to a party? Well, because I go to Phil Johnson's parties at the Park West and blah, blah, blah. And he just kind of looked at me and shook his head. And he goes, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I would have to charge you $500 to, to come. And I'm like, oh, no, that's fine. I'll do it. I'll do it. And he goes, because you just had these three flops. I can't wait till that night to get my money. So I would need it up front. And that was the hardest thing I ever had to do is borrow $500 to give him after I just lost 
about two, three thousand. But I got it from my uncle, my uncle Chuck. He uh, he actually gave it to me, and lo and behold, twenty three hundred people came to that party at twelve dollars. I made thirty thousand dollars, thirty something thousand dollars cash, which I wasn't prepared for. So we started throwing it into laundry bags that I'd gotten from the place that I threw the party at. And that was the beginning of me doing that on a major scale. Wow, that's unbelievable. So how long did you do this party promoting for? I uh, did the party promoting for from 84 to 86. Uh, I remember after that Reggie Thea stunt about the following year, actually, I get a call from a sportscaster from Fox News Hey, I'm bringing this guy to your party. He just came to town. He's playing with the Bulls. His name is Michael Jordan. I never heard of him. His name is Michael Jordan. Glad he watched college basketball. Sure. Can you put him on the guest list? Sure. Put him on the guest list. So Michael Jordan came. And so because I dreamed so big, I was known for having like the most beautiful women in Chicago at my party. So he came. And, you know, he's from North Carolina. He's from the South. He, he wasn't used to that kind of beauty like that. And I think, me personally, I'm thinking he lost his mind. And so he came to every single one. So what that became is actually us creating like a quasi-partnership while we put his name on the invite uh, with mine. And this 2,000 people a month, it just went on for every month for like that point, probably like a year, year and a half. And that's what I meant by not having the value of money instilled on you in you i went out remember it's like 84 now and bought a jaguar cash and remember now that we know what we know about jaguars now they're full of electrical power problems but i spend all my money on the car you know it's always in the shop because they break all the time so i'm spending all this money and say go two years after that to 86 i had made all this money and didn't have a dime to show for it. It was all consumed and spent. I started like taking women out five-star restaurants and just kind of living like a, a, a irresponsible uh, athlete. But whereas I know now, if I had grown up like you had asked me with the concept of money instilled in me at 22 is old enough to know, start an IRA, start this investment account, and I would have done that, but I didn't. Okay, so you do the party planning and you've blown this money. So you're broke again. And I know at this point, this is when you went to LA, right? Yes. And so you, Daryl, you had this dream to become a movie star and you ended up breaking into arguably the most difficult industry possible, the movie industry. So tell us the story of what happened when you went to LA, you got no money in your pocket. What happened next? Well, no. So actually, I went to L.A. I did not have any money because I was going to L.A. I had $384. Okay. Which I guess is no money. Uh, I took my girlfriend. That was my first time going to L.A. And I remember we were driving down Sunset Boulevard. And once again, I don't know. Well, I guess it's because I was going to be a movie star. Something about the palm trees and all them billboards on Sunset. I think it set me off. I remember telling her, I want to make a movie. And at the time, that was just unheard of. Like I said, Spike Lee hadn't even come out with his first movie. She's got to have it yet. Because you want to make a movie. I mean, literally, it was a ludicrous concept for someone to say, 
from my background. You had no experience, no connections. Uh, no, zero experience, zero connections. So she just kind of wrote it off as a ridiculous comment. But, you know, I finished out my trip to LA, came back. I'm like, you know what? I'm making a movie. No, while I was there, I took the $384 and I went to the Samuel French bookstore, which I saw it three weeks ago. It's actually still there. The biggest movie bookstore in uh, Hollywood. And I uh, bought books on how to write, direct, how to produce uh, in the movie industry. Spending all my money, she goes, we're not going to be able to eat. And I remember telling her eating was overrated um, <laughs> on that trip. So I came back. I read all the books and told her, yep, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make a movie. And uh, her cousin, who was one of the top doctors in Chicago, after he finished laughing at me, it was over a period of time. He didn't just do it. He went to all the top doctors in Chicago and uh, raised the money for me. I ended up making my first movie, which depends how you look at it. It's three phases of it. So it didn't make any money. So it was a financial disaster. But it was, that one was also a critical d disaster. All the critics said it was crude. The budget was $31,000 for like a movie. It was crude, but for some, some reason, when I watched it, I just didn't agree with the critics. And I saw potential where they didn't see potential in the film community in Chicago. I remember they were going around saying, well, this guy's gone. He'll never resurface again. So this kicks back into that fight or flight, whatever they call it. I'm like, nah, you know what? Everybody's wrong. Don't care what the critics think. I don't care because the people, I remember this how... I was a, a movie was playing at the Evergreen Plaza Theaters. It's not there anymore, 95th and Western. I remember I was standing outside the theater to meet people when they would come out. And this one guy, he was with a girl, he came out and walked up to me. And I thought I was about to get some adulation. And he goes, Man, I know you don't have it, but so I'm not going to ask you for it. But I just paid $16 for us to both watch this movie and you owe me my money back. But I know you don't have it, so man. And then he just walked away. And I was with a friend of mine. He goes, Man, how do you how do you recover from a beating like that? And I just said, I mean, he was wrong. I mean, what do you want from me? And my friend was like, Well, all the critics said it. I'm like, nah, I don't care what anybody said. So go to three years later, I make another movie. This one's critically acclaimed. It played all over the country. It comes out on Universal pictures home video and we break records in the home entertainment market which at the time was a vhs tape uh dvd didn't exist and my thoughts about myself proved to be correct well so i don't know if it was the first movie or the second movie but i've heard you talking before about trying to pitch it to studios and getting turned away which which movie was that with um well actually it was both so the first one actually came out in theaters in Chicago. That's how the guy saw it. But these two lawyers from Chicago started a distribution company. This was after I pitched it to every studio in Hollywood and they wouldn't pick it up. And um, they, the two lawyers, distributed it in theaters in uh, Chicago. Then the second one I pitched to everybody and turned down by everybody in Hollywood. Except this one, people liked a lot more. They just didn't pick it up. It was an ensemble relationship film, kind of something like Waiting to Exhale. So I did it before Waiting to Exhale. So it had never existed before and it didn't have stars in it. So they just thought it wasn't commercial, but a lot of people liked it. So I ended up releasing it myself in theaters 
And we had a lot of um, multiplexes. It would be six to eight screens on this independent film that I'm distributing myself in the theater with me. I remember specifically was um, Unforgiven with Morgan Freeman, Boomerang, uh, Single White Female was a film, and all these blockbusters. And I didn't make more money than them nationwide because the way it works, they'll be in 2,000 screens. I was only on 13 screens. So that's why they call it per screen average. The gross that you make divided by the amount of screens you're on comes up with your per screen average. That shows how well you're doing per screen. Well, the screens that I was on with them, I was always the number one film in the complex. I was blowing out these Hollywood movies, but I just wasn't on as many screens in them. So cumulatively, I didn't make like $50 million. And that's when I knew what I suspected all along anyway, that everybody was wrong and I was right. Wow. Well, so when you had gotten turned down by all of these studios the first time and you know everyone was just telling you no, what inspired you to keep going and how did you ultimately you know, find the, the people who loaned you the money to make the movie? On that, on, on the second one, it was called How You Like Me Now. I met this woman I was trying to date. And she was a financial master. She was an executive at uh, First Chicago, which was a big bank uh, at the time on Dearborn and Madison, downtown Chicago. I was trying to date her for some reason. Woman well, I mean, wouldn't wouldn't date me, but even though she wouldn't date me, she just kept saying, "Dude, you just kind of kind of special." And actually, she didn't mean that in a good way when she would say that. She meant I wasn't wrapped too tight. She's like, "You just kind of special," and we just became like good friends. So she never did date me, but she believed in me. So with her financial uh, largesse, I'll say, she raised like $300,000 for me to do my uh, second film, uh, How You Like Me Now. So that's kind of how I got the money. You know, as far as people saying no, I, I don't know, Dorothy, I'm just not cut out for no. I just don't, I don't think I understand it. If I think I want to do something, I want to do it. But looking back on it, I will say that I'm, that she was right. The lady that wouldn't date me. You know, I'm not really wrapped too tight. And it's really not logical to be that way. But like I said at the beginning, the, the Steve Jobs, the Bill Gates, the Mark Zuckerberg, the one out of a hundred that slipped through the cracks, it is the way that you have to think. Because any entrepreneur that gets anywhere near to a significant position will absolutely hear no more than they hear yes. So, Daryl, you make these two movies. What happens next? Where do you go from there? The second one, even though it was critically acclaimed, played in 30 cities around the country, it was at the top of the charts on a home video. So at the time, remember, Hollywood studios weren't owned by multinational corporations. So Sony wasn't owned by the Japanese. Mm -hmm. They were more like independent studios. So without saying any studios' names, they did, even the film made millions and they did what's called, or what you, I don't think they do it anymore because, you know, these have board of directors. You have to be responsible. But back in the day, there was this term called creative accounting where a studio could on paper make it look like 
they didn't make any money, so they don't have to give you your royalties, no matter how much they make. So even though the film actually did make a few million dollars, they did the creative accounting, and I didn't see anything. So after this valiant effort of critical acclaim, people packed into the theaters, us being number one on at Blockbuster, I still didn't have any money. I still broke. So at that time, I meet a guy on the street. He was an executive producer at NBC News who had seen the film in the theaters. I think he was an aspiring filmmaker, even though he ended up in news. And we're just talking. He goes, you want to be a reporter? I said, a reporter for what? I said, for NBC, you could come on and talk about uh, entertainment. Huh. I used to think about being on TV when I was little. Well, let's just do it. So then I started being a reporter for WMAQ. It's the local NBC affiliate in Chicago. I did that for two years. And that's where I got out my fascination of being a movie star. It wasn't a movie. It was on TV. But literally, I would leave. I would report on the news, walk out of NBC, and go to breakfast. And everybody at the breakfast place had just seen me on TV. And they would say hello and knew my name. And I think that's where I got my satisfaction of being a movie star from my two-year run on uh, NBC. Wow. So was that the the way that you ended up you know, making money again after, after not getting anything back from the movies? What was kind of your next big break? No, actually, so I was a part-time reporter. Uh, so that wasn't a lot of money. So I think my next big money windfall was I was with a girlfriend. This was a different one than the one I took to Hollywood. And I was in New York. I don't know if it was for the first time or not, but I was in New York. And I walked into this hotel, and it was called the uh, Paramount Hotel. I think it's on 46th or 47th Street. And I remember looking around going, wow, this, ho- this hotel is stylish. And um, I asked the manager, I'm like, why does this hotel look so much more awesome than the average hotel? He goes, oh, we had a world-renowned architect and designer design this. I'm like, really? Goes, yeah, his name is Philippe Stark. I'm like, Philippe Stark? So yeah, he's from France. Oh, okay, he's really awesome. We have a little gift shop. We sell a book on Philippe Stark. So I go over there and I buy this book. It was like $70. I'll never forget it, but I just got it anyway. So I'm reading about Philippe Stark. So I'm sitting there and I'm going, you know what? I want to design stuff. And what was the most amazing thing was his colors and his furniture. I'm like, you know what? I want to design furniture. (laughs) And everybody laughed again. And I started uh, designing furniture. But because I wasn't a classically trained architect, these were not original concepts that I came up with. I became the king of what's called a knockoff. And I got so good at knockoffs that I... So everything I do, I always wanted to be the biggest in the world. Because with these knockoffs, I actually was making a lot of money. These are average chairs and average couches that I would make for regular families that were affordable. But I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to do furniture for movie stars or just something big. So I started doing I started buying magazines, looking at the most expensive furniture in the magazine. Go, I want to make that. I want to make it for somebody rich. And I think from there... The place where I was getting my furniture from said they weren't capable of doing that. It was too intricate. And I met this Serbian guy in Santa Monica and told him what I wanted to do. He had a wood shop. 
And I went to see him several times. We should go in business together. He goes, no, I can't shut my shop down to make your furniture. We should go in business together. I can't shut my shop down. I'm like, dude, every time I come in here, nobody's in here. (laughs) I said, you don't have any customers. He goes, I mean, that's true. Okay, let's do it. But he was awesome. He actually can make all these intricate things. So it ended up where I designed the home of a movie star. I did the president of DirecTV, who lived in Palos Verdes, California. Then ended up doing a whole floor of the MTV building. I was making so much money that I didn't have a care in the world. But I wanted to go back to what I was doing, which is making movies. So I made a conscious decision that I wasn't going to make furniture anymore only because I had become kind of so prominent in it that I knew if I didn't stop then, I was just going to be way too rich to turn my back to it. So I literally just stopped in the middle of something that was massively successful. And remember, this was the 90s. And I kid you not, over the last two years, several people have even asked me, do you still do furniture? I want to get a piece. I was like, nah, I haven't done that in 20 years. I had come up with a concept. My middle name is Anthony. So I called myself D. Anthony Designs. It had this ring to it. You're getting your furniture designed by D. Anthony. And it was this kind of mystique. And like I said, I only did stuff that was very high end that would be in a movie star's home at an affordable price. So that was my concept. Live like a movie star at a price you could afford. That was my uh, tagline. Wow. So there seems to be this theme from you know the party promoting to the movies to the furniture of you having these massive ideas and dreams for which really there's no evidence that you should be successful in any of these things, but you just decided you wanted to do it, went after it, and made it happen. So what is it about you know, about you or the way that you operate that that allowed you to to do these things? Because I think so many people have an idea, but they think that's so far-fetched. You know, how am I ever going to achieve that? But but you did it, you know, over and over again. What was that? Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like from the time I was 18, every thought that's entered my mind, I've actually done it. So if you'd asked me this a few years ago, I would have said, I think it's because I'm fearless. So there was a guy at NBC, his name was Warner Saunders. He had been there about 30 years. I remember something he told me. He said that the reason you see me on the news and not the thousands of people that are more talented than me is that whenever you go on a a venture of greatness, whether it's entrepreneurial or in the workforce, but where it's something that's considered really great, and he goes, being a uh, you know, a broadcast journalist on a, in a major market on the news is considered really great. Well, to try to get there, there's this thing he called a breaking point where you run up against a force so strong that most people quit. So he said if 100 people are trying to do something, he goes 97 of them when they reach that breaking point. And he goes, it's a different point depending on who the person is. They're going to break, quit, and go back. I persevered where the people that were more talented than me, even though they had talent, they didn't have perseverance. So when they hit that breaking point, they just quit. So 
based on that, if you'd asked me this a few years ago, I would have said that I think the reason I pull this stuff off is because I'm fearless. See, I'm not afraid to be broke. I'm not afraid to not be able to pay my bills. None of that I've been there. So remember, I grew up like that. So that's a whole different perspective than somebody who just the thought of being broke and not being able to pay their bills would make them shudder. That would stop them in their tracks from doing something way out there from the beginning because just the thought of it would shake them up. Me, if I, And I mean, it's today, since sitting here talking to you now, if I ended up broke tomorrow, I could care less. I'll reinvent myself, make something else happen. So I think that kind of fearlessness is, you know, it's, it's, it, it helps. But the other thing I learned, this part I really understand, because I think some of it is spiritual, some of it is mythical, some of it's even magical. I've been told that I am a manifester, a spiritual guru who knows about different types of people. He goes, he says something about a shaman, which is an Eastern culture. He said, you're a natural born manifester. You do these things in ways that most people can't. You know, that's just words I'm hearing, but I can't explain. I mean, I guess I know what it means, but how, why I'm a manifester, like what is it in my DNA? So that's the part I don't understand, but he told me it wasn't important to understand because he goes, most people over-intellectualize things and that's the root of their failure. Mm -hmm. And he goes, the fact that you don't understand what makes you special in that way, you won't make some of the mishaps as if you thought you had mental control over it. You'll just follow your heart instead of your mind. You so say you'll be okay that way. So, Daryl, in 2007, you produced the first of your three documentaries, America the Beautiful. What was that documentary about? What inspired you to create it? Uh, America the Beautiful dealt with America's unhealthy obsession with beauty. What inspired me to make it? Uh, I think it was a culmination of my life. I remember. I was at McDonald's, the Rock and Roll McDonald's on Ontario Street with this manager. He, he, he was the manager of a movie star at the time. And we were just sitting there talking, and we were talking about uh, beauty. That specific day, we were talking about beauty. And I was telling him how shallow I used to be. Like I used to just have this desire for dating like really beautiful women. Uh, granted, I mean, I got to do it, but that wasn't the point. The point was that that's all, that was my only criteria. Like literally nothing about their personality, their substance, this beauty. And I was like, dude, why am I so jacked up over beauty? Where did this come from? Through that conversation, I remember sitting there thinking, that would be a cool documentary to like, do one on like why we're so obsessed with beauty. So initially in doing a documentary, it was truly a discovery tool to find answers to a question I had at a McDonald's. But as I started the journey and I met so many women who had been, whether it was through advertising, whether it was through whatever, had felt like they were victims to the whole beauty thing to the extent that I need to lose weight and be skinning like Paris Hilton. I need this. I need that. Uh, I started, it took on a deeper meaning. And then at the end, it ended up being a, 
something to empower women. So you basically did a complete 180 from being this party promoter where there really was this focus around, you know, how do you get beautiful women to your parties to actually creating a documentary about how oppressive the whole obsession around beauty in our culture is. Yes. Yeah. 180. Because 360 means you end up right back where you were. (laughs) Yes. 180. Yeah. So then you made two more documentaries in that series after that. What were those about? The second one dealt with uh, body mass index and health. The central question was, should uh, BMI or body mass index be used as a proxy for health? Because by a BMI scale, Tom Cruise is overweight, The Rock is obese, Shaq is morbidly obese, (laughs) so it doesn't account for muscle mass, bone density, or anything like that. It's just this archaic formula, and we just took a look at, is it a person's size that dictates their health, or is it their behavior? So that was what the second one was about. The third one dealt with the sexualization of our youth, the different ways, and porn was a big part of it, but the different ways that we sexualize young people. So your work with America the Beautiful eventually led to some fascinating experiences for you, one of which being uh, with Abercrombie & Fitch. Can you tell us that story? What happened at Abercrombie & Fitch that, that kicked this whole thing off? I was doing this teen empowerment series, this thing where I mentor uh, young girls. So in early 2013, this news report came out that the CEO of Abercrombie said that overweight people shouldn't wear our clothes because our clothes are for the cool kids, the beautiful kids, blah, blah, blah. So the 17-year-old girl, her name was Callie, came to me and said, why would the uh, CEO of Abercrombie say something like that because doesn't he realize that overweight people get bullied in school and he shouldn't like pick on overweight people. And he's being a bully by doing that. She was really adamant about it. And she goes, I want to do something about it. I'm like, well, what do you want to do? I mean, I don't know. I'm like, "Uh, why don't you do a a peaceful protest? She goes, what's that? So I tell you what, I said, make some signs get about 30 of your friends and meet me at Abercrombie Monday at four o'clock and you're going to do a peaceful protest. She goes, okay. So I went to her house and watched her make these signs. And she was actually really good at drawing stuff on a, on a particle board, uh, make these signs. And we did the protest on Monday. I had called the Today Show, Good Morning America, Ellen DeGeneres, and all these media people. So when she showed up, like 17 national news organizations was there to cover their protests. And I remember these teenage girls being so empowered. And two days later, after the protests, Abercrombie called me and they were like, we'd like to talk to you about this protest you did at our store with these kids. So I took Callie and we drove with her parents and we drove to the headquarters of uh, Abercrombie and I showed her how to make a presentation in front of uh, executives. So this 17-year-old girl stands up in front of these corporate executives and tell them that they're bullies and you should be ashamed of yourself. And you can see all the executives is kind of doing this thing chest by a, a teenager. But based on that presentation, 
Abercrombie, you know, they were like, well, no, we can't go back to doing what we did, which was sexualizing young girls. Would you like, they said to Callie, would you like to maybe go around the country and do a anti-bullying campaign? And she was like, sure. And they say, yeah, we want you to produce it to me. So in the fall of 2013, we went to 20 cities, the top 20 cities, and Callie spoke at a high school. Miss America showed up at one of her things, an NBA, that was in New York, an NBA star showed up at one of her symposiums in Atlanta, and her nationwide thing was covered like nationally by the uh, press. So the next year, 2014, they were like, we want to take this on as a thing. And we did one that. So Callie wasn't involved with that one, but I went on to keep building their program. So in 2014, we came up with a DVD featuring Lucy Hell from Pretty Little Liars with a curriculum. It went to 10,000 high schools. The year after that, which would be 2015, there was this band called Echo Smith that had like 40 million views on YouTube. Uh, we featured them in the Bully Prevention DVD with another curriculum. Now we went to 20,000 high schools. So now Abercrombie has the largest high school bully prevention program in the country, which started with this 17-year-old girl's protest. Wow. And it's unbelievable. I mean, the, the way that you joined together and really empowered these teenagers to stand up and make their voices heard and ultimately having it lead to real change from this massive corporation. And so that was the start of Harley Boy Innovations, which is now a seven-figure-a-month business. Is that right? Uh, no, not seven figures a month. So some of our fees during the Abercrombie days were seven figures a month. But remember, a, a corporation, when they're in crises, they have a different budget than a standard marketing budget. Mm -hmm. So now all my clients are in the standard marketing budget range. So it's not seven figures a month anymore. So for instance, when United dragged that guy off the plane, whenever a company has a bad image to the public, they pay millions of dollars to image crisis mm -hmm. to help them get out of the crises. Once they're out, they go back to normal, standard, uh, normal marketing budgets. But uh, yeah, so that protest led to, um, so Abercrombie ended up, was it 2015 or 16? Because they changed a lot of their corporate practices, getting Comeback Retailer of the Year Award. So some of the work that I did with them led to, you know, be doing stuff with the NBA, LaCroix Sparkling Water, and, you know, uh, like you said, the uh, USTA, I started a whole campaign with them for a uh, pop tennis, which is this feeder program that's on these smaller courts, get people to start playing tennis that they hope would go on to start playing regular tennis. But yeah, that was the beginning to starting that uh, company. So now with Harley Boy Innovations, you have, you know, really created unbelievable financial freedom for yourself, but you have maintained this focus on on giving back and making sure that you are doing things to really make an impact. And I think that one unbelievable example of that is what you're doing now with the Be Me, Be Free campaign. So can you tell us what this campaign is, how you, you know, got this idea and got started with it? 
part of my life's mission, life's mission now is a sense of purpose. So my sense of purpose is, you know, in my work. So I guess, you know what, in his honor, Steve Jobs, because he was one of my heroes, by the way, the CEO of Apple, in his honor, that's how I'm actually living my life. So the work that I do is not based on my personal gratification, is based literally on contributions that I can make to the world. So I'm actually living something he said that we should be doing. Yeah, to be me, be free. Um, it's a hybrid of like what I did with Abercrombie, starting the uh, building a network of 20,000 high schools to take social programs with my documentaries. So my documentaries are in the library of uh, 3,000 universities. So when you think about it, that's a distribution system. When you have access to have ways of communicating with the health professional at 20,000 high schools and 3,000 universities, so I met a, an executive at Lifetime, and they were look they were looking to like rebrand the network, become more where people became more of brand loyalists to the network as opposed to one offs. I mean, they hear about the Michelet story, they watch it, but they're back off to their favorite network, back to Netflix probably. They want it to become a destination, and I was like, well, millennials today they kind of gravitate towards companies that do social good in the world that stand for something. So they would say, well, you know, let's do it. So that's where the idea came from. Since I had this network, why don't we come up with a social initiative using the network and blend it with what we do, which is making movies. So that's how it came up. And I had pinpointed that anxiety is a major thing right now affecting our youth to the point where, you know, as opposed to really dealing with the crux of a situation, they medicate eight-year-olds now. Everything's about just medication. You know, that's what we uh, what we did. I came up with this initiative where I'm going to have all the schools, like 23,000 of them, have people submit stories about their personal dealings with anxiety. A team of mental health professionals go through all the submissions, then select one, and Lifetime has agreed to turn that one submission into a movie and we're going to use that movie as a launch pad for having this nationwide discussion about anxiety and things that we can do to help our youth not suffer there are like countries where they don't have this large percentage of their young people anxious you know like we do so it's a cultural thing like what's going on in our culture that's affecting our uh, young people that's what we look to do with this uh, campaign. And, you know, I just like to say I, I think it's awesome that companies are starting to step up and get involved in social issues. Yesterday, uh, Levi's Blue Jean people announced that they're going to do an initiative dealing with gun violence. And the CEO, what he said that I thought was really cool, he goes, we're going to take on gun violence as an initiative even though we don't sell guns. So that's a, you know, really, you know that they're just being authentic yeah. because they have nothing to sell or gain. They're giving millions of dollars to different organizations that are grassroots out fighting against gun violence. And I think we're going to start seeing more and more and more of that stuff happening. And you know what? Young people are to thank because companies have gotten the message that, hey, you know, to reach these young people, 
we have to be authentic and we have to stand for something. So young people are actually changing the landscape of how companies do business, which is really awesome. It is. And I was reading some of these statistics as I was uh, learning more about the Be Me, Be Free campaign. And I read that 30% of teen girls and 20% of teen boys suffer from anxiety, but 40% of teens with anxiety never seek help. So, you know, I imagine a large part of that does have to do with the stigma around mental illness. So, what can we do to, you know, fight this stigma and normalize the idea of anxiety and make it easier for for young people to get help? Yeah, I think the not getting help is some of what you said, the stigma, but I think another part of it is a lot of young people don't know that it's anxiety. Mm. And then there's also people who think they have anxiety, but it's not anxiety, it's something else. Because one of the things, so because I'm not a mental health professional, I don't like work in the like, treatment and curing of anxiety. But what I did do is I commissioned this organization to put together this do you have anxiety test that we have on our website for bemebefree.org. So young people literally could go take this test, and it was put together by PhDs in that field. And at the end of the test, it gives you a recommendation, like depending on your score, you're on the borderline, maybe you should talk to somebody, or you really don't have anxiety, you sound like you're doing something else. So this is at least what I can contribute anyway, like a first step where a teen on their own in privacy could go and take the test and see what it is. I think the other reason people don't get help, especially in minority communities, and they're saying like, that's one of the reasons, there's a lot of them, but that's one of the reasons why you get disproportionately so many shootings and killings in urban communities is because they can't get help. But the reason they can't get help to get treatment for anxiety is twenty to $30,000 a month. That's why mainly only the kids of rich people actually get help. And the rest of the population has to just deal with it. And to be honest with you, there is no really dealing with it on a personal level. And now if you notice, if you really look back over the last 10 years, our country's getting worse and worse as opposed to better and better. And that's because the poor and the lower middle class, which is the majority of the United States, by the way, is left to fend for themselves because they can't get the treatment like of a movie star's kids. Like I know three movie stars now, the kids are in an anxiety treatment center in California, paying 30000 a month. And you know, regular people just can't do that. So when you say twenty to $30,000 a month to treat anxiety, I mean, that's if you're going to one of these inpatient facilities? Yes. Gotcha. Yeah, if you're to an inpatient facility, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, out, outpatient, I'm not sure that cost, but I do believe it's more than most people can afford as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what formats can people use to submit their stories? Is it just written essays? How are people able to contribute to Be Me, Be Free? Yeah. So yeah, we're taking people's uh, personal anxiety stories. And then the uh, concept behind that is that research has shown that when a young person have anxiety and they write about it and share it with others, they literally reduce the amount of angst, the angst in themselves. And they encourage others to share their story 
thus uh, forming a, a community that they can belong to. And I noticed one of the things that young people like today are storytellers, you know, whether it's singers or whatever. So I decided to use that same concept with the submissions. So we take actually various forms, written letters, songs, poems, videos, selfies, however people, like we got a submission yesterday, it was three minutes long, and it literally was a boy just sitting in front of the computer, staring off into space with his music playing, and he wrote just a little short thing, you could tell from this how I feel, and I kid you not, from looking at this, not without one word spoken, I could feel his pain. I literally felt how he was feeling just from this. So people are being really creative with their uh, submissions. And I only say letter songs, poems, and videos. People can send whatever they want. They can come up with something creative I've never even thought of and submit it. We'll select one, and that'll be the, uh, the basis of the movie. But we've been getting so many submissions. We actually added a second and a third prize, so only one of them will be turned into a movie. But like the second prize, we have therapists that will donate an hour's worth of time to whoever needs it. And I think what I'm going to do, I'm going to get more therapists to come on board to donate an hour so that we can give out 20, 30, or 40 of those. Wow. Then the third prize, I think it was like $500, just a cash prize, but... I'm looking to partner with people so we can just keep adding more so that we can support, you know, our young people. Because, you know, think about it. You know, when I'm like 80, the people today are going to be the doctors and bus drivers and caregivers of tomorrow. So we want them healthy. They have to take care of us uh, in the future. So this launched on September 5th. So people can now go submit their stories at BeMeBeFree.org. Is that right? Yeah, in last September. Well, yesterday, well, yeah, yesterday, September 5th, and the submission period goes until October 5th. So for that 30-day period, people can go to BeMeBeFree.org and submit their personal anxiety story. And it's funny, most of the, matter of fact, all the people who have submitted so far, there's a box you check. Do you want this made public or do you want this private? Everybody said public, share it. So starting next Monday, meeting with a social media team, we're going to start sharing some of the stories on Facebook, Twitter, and through social media, and literally build this community and support the people that are writing these stories. So if you are listening to this, we recorded this a few days early. So today is the day that those stories are beginning to be shared. So check out the show notes, and we will post the links to all of the social channels where you can go check those out. Daryl, thank you again. It has truly been such an honor to hear your story and get to share this with our listeners. Lastly, before I let you go, where can everyone go to learn more about you and, of course, Be Me, Be Free? As far as Be Me, Be Free, well, I guess that's the website, BeMeBeFree.org. As far as me, my documentaries, America the Beautiful Doc, America the Beautiful DOC.com has information about my documentaries. Uh, other than those two places, if you want to know about me, I guess you have to stalk me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, I do know your address. So if anyone wants to stalk Daryl, <laughs> you know someone. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been so much fun. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show. 
Now, before we sign off from our chat with Daryl, I want to introduce any new listeners to the Do Well and Do Good Challenge. This is where I encourage those of you who want to do more to give back to contribute to the nonprofits that are nominated by our guests. And at the end of each month inside of our free Facebook community, we host a vote to determine which of the nonprofits nominated that I will donate 10% of my after-tax income to on behalf of the podcast. So it's a really cool thing. We've been able to raise money for some incredible organizations. And for this episode, it's actually really unique. Instead of nominating a traditional nonprofit, You heard during the episode that one of the prizes of the Be Me, Be Free campaign is a session with a renowned therapist. Now, Daryl also mentioned that he was hoping to figure out how to be able to offer more of those sessions. So he and I had the idea, what if that was the nomination for the challenge? So if you would like to contribute to getting more young people with anxiety the help that they need, send an email to challenge at dowellanddogood.co and I'll give you instructions on how to do so. If you would like to participate in the vote and make your voice heard that way, then head to our free Facebook group, which you can find at dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook. We're having a ton of fun in the group and I'm sharing tips, ideas, resources, and more to help you both increase your income and your impact. Lastly, if you are a young person with anxiety or you know a young person with anxiety, then encourage them to head over to BeMeBeFree.org and consider sharing their story. We'll include the links to all of this in the show notes. So check those out. And thank you so much for listening. 